Good morning. This is uh, lesson 34 in our series on the Gospel of Mark. My punster friend Bill over there, you don't know how many titles have come to my mind. But this is the one that was socially acceptable, and so I, uh, I kept it. Jesus arrested follower barely escapes. Um, and I think you will uh, identify with uh, some of the events there. Yes? <laughs> you wait and see. The snake handling sermon is yet to come. And I must confess, I'm not going to duck that text, so... You'll, uh, you'll see how that goes. I, uh, I actually thought about starting this uh, message with a, a, a clip from The Return of the Pink Panther. And you remember, uh, I love some of those scenes, but one of the funniest scenes in that movie is the bank robbery scene where you remember Inspector Clouseau is, is dutifully going along and he sees this blind beggar, allegedly at least, and his minky. Uh, and and uh, remember he says, uh, the, the blind beggar says, uh, I'm the musician, but the minky is the businessman. You know, so it isn't me that needs the permit, it is him. But Clouseau is so intent on this man having the proper license that uh, he ignores the whole scene of this group of bank robbers who come in with hoods on and through the window you see them mugging the, 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 the uh, head of the bank and whatever. And then when the robbers come out, they drop a, a sack of money. He picks it up and hands it to them and directs traffic so they can go on. And when the bank manager comes out to shoot, he walks him, whops him on the head, knocks him cold. And, and uh, so anyway, this whole scene is a kind of a comedy routine of a guy who's so intent on doing his duty that he totally misses the bigger picture. And that is precisely the way that I look at our text with the uh, betrayal and the arrest of our Lord. It seems to me that what we need to see is, is, is the comic element in it um, that is there because here, here, are, here are a group of really professional people and they take this job, let's call them the SWAT team, that's what I'll call them a little later. They take their job very seriously. But you can't, you just can't imagine how badly this thing is bungled. Everybody but Jesus bungles in, in this event. And so it's sort of Keystone Cops. Uh, the soldiers make their mess. Peter cuts off a man's ear. Jesus puts it back and rebukes Peter. And, uh, and, and then the scene which is unique to Mark. Here is this fellow wrapped in a bed sheet somehow. I don't know exactly, but it's at, you know, at best his pajamas. And, and he gets grabbed to be arrested, runs off, and here he goes naked into the night. And you're saying, what in the world did Mark put that in the text for? And uh, that's what our job is to discover. So here's my approach to this lesson. What I want to do is, is I want to look at a composite account of, of the events that are taking place and, and then I want to look at the unique contributions of each of the authors, but I want to put Mark's account against the backdrop of that, of that cosmic overall account of all of the details to see what it is that Mark wants us to note 
against the backdrop of the fuller picture of all of the Gospels uh, put together. So, let's start with the composite account of the arrest of Jesus, and we'll start with the upper room. You remember that when Jesus sent two of his disciples, we know that they were Peter and John, they were to make arrangements for this upper room for the observance of the Passover, and it was very carefully done so that, the, uh, that Judas would not be able to discern the place of the meeting. It would have been the perfect time, it would have been the perfect place for Jesus to have been privately arrested and, and dealt with, and so it was important that Judas not know, and by our Lord's orchestration, he does not. During the meal, when Judas is there, Jesus shocks the, the disciples by telling them one of them is going to be his betrayer. That, of course, leads into all kinds of conversation. But in the course of that conversation, while the disciples are otherwise occupied, Judas turns to Jesus and says, is it me? And in effect, Jesus says, yes. And remember, he takes that piece of, of bread, dips it, and hands it to Judas, and Judas takes it. And John's Gospel says, immediately Satan entered into Judas, and Jesus dismissed him. He goes out, John says, and it was night. So after the departure of, of Judas, you have the, uh, the, the Lord's table uh, commemorated for the first time. And uh, you have the Lord giving the upper room discourse, which we find in uh, John chapter 13 through chapter 17. Now, Jesus leaves the upper room. Remember, they sing a hymn. They go out. They are headed down uh, into the Kidron Valley and then up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, headed for the Garden of Gethsemane, a familiar place not only to Jesus but to his disciples and therefore also familiar to Judas. On that route, Jesus says to the disciples another shocking thing. This night all of you will forsake me. One of you will betray me, but all of you will forsake me. That leads to great consternation on the part of the uh, disciples. And remember, they enter into an argument <laughs> with themselves about who is the greatest, as we see in Luke chapter 22. Peter wants Jesus to know that while that might be true for everybody else, it is not true for him. Though everyone else forsake him, he says, I will not deny you. And Jesus then says to him, Actually, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus then goes on in the Gospel of Luke to, to say something interesting, especially in light of our text. He says to the disciples, do you remember when I sent you out initially? I sent you out, you didn't take a bag or, or any extra stuff with you. And the reason was that wherever you went, if people accepted you, and more importantly, if they accepted me through your message then they would put you up. They would take care of you so you wouldn't need food, you wouldn't need money, you wouldn't need all of these things. You would be well received. He says to them, we've entered into a new time, a new era. And the reason is that Jesus is going to be dealt with as a, a desperately uh, feared criminal. 
a revolutionary, a, a Barabbas, if you want to put it in those terms. That's the way in which Jesus is going to be dealt with. And because you're my followers, you're going to be dealt with as criminals too. So because of that, you need to take a purse, a bag, and a sword. It's interesting, he says, if you don't have a sword, sell your outer garment. Now, I would take it, given the fact that you really need that outer garment, that, that they would understand that you're not going to leave uh, that, that part of the clothing in order to have a sword. And then the disciples, not understanding any metaphorical speech at all, say, hey, here's two swords. And Jesus says, it's enough. You know, I think what he's saying is, I'm not going there now. You know, just leave that one alone. But they have two swords. And my friends, I, I, Judas is not there at that point. But I am convinced that Judas knew who was packing and who wasn't packing. Uh, when you spend three years with guys, and, and, and at least two of those guys are packing swords, I don't have any doubt that Judas knew there were weapons there. And, <laughs> and he also knew, we know one of them is Peter, and if either one of the others was James or John, the sons of thunder, those boys not only packed them, they knew how to use them, and they would. Well, anyway, Jesus then agonizes in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane while his disciples sleep. He then after awakening them three times, on the third occasion, he says, in effect, let's get going. He announces to his disciples what's going on. He says to them, my betrayer is approaching. So in one sense, you have this, this group, uh, this huge group of people who are, who are going to make this SWAT operation. And so in a sense, they're sneaking up to converge upon Jesus, no doubt to surround he and his disciples so no one gets away. And he says, Jesus says to his disciples, while that is, is taking place, and I think unbeknownst to the disciples, here's what's going to happen. And then Jesus literally marches out to meet them. Now, in some of the texts, you get the impression that the group is, is sort of coming upon Jesus. And you might, if you didn't get the whole picture, you might get the sense that somehow that's a surprise. That was the intent it was not the reality. Jesus marches out, I think, especially in John, confronts them. And, and uh, that's when, of course, a whole bunch of things begin to happen. So here's the SWAT team arriving. Now, when, when, when we read this account, let's read it in the light of all of the failed attempts to either arrest or kill Jesus. Okay? We know that as early as Mark chapter 3, the leaders intended to kill Jesus. But when we come to Luke chapter 4, and Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, and he says, you know, after, after reading that text from Isaiah, says, today this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing, and everybody's saying their hallelujahs, and Jesus says, well, hold on just one second. You need to understand, this gospel that I'm bringing is for Gentiles as well as Jews. Remember, they wanted to push Jesus over the cliff. That was apparently time number one. Over and over, they sought to arrest Jesus. One of those times involved temple police, who are going to be involved in this. Temple police, John chapter 7, are sent off, you know, and then the, they're supposed to bring Jesus back, and they're going to deal with him, and, and uh, temple police come back empty-handed, and religious authorities say, where, where, where is he? They say, oh, have you ever heard this guy teach? Boy, this guy was good. You know, and, and, and it's like, oh give up. So over and over again, attempts to arrest Jesus or stone him have failed. 
you have to know at this point in time, they are determined they are not going to look bad one more time by coming back empty-handed. They're going to do this thing, and they're going to do it right. That's why I give that SWAT team feel to it uh, that is there. Look who is there. If you look in the margin of the uh, New American Standard Bible, it says there's a battalion of Roman soldiers led by a commander. Margin again on John 18, uh, verse 12, says that a commander is a commander of a thousand. This, this isn't a half a dozen guys going out to, to lead Jesus away. This is a, a Roman regiment that is going out to provide this. Then you have the temple police. I don't know how large that group was. And you have this whole group described as not only a mob, but a large mob. This is a batch of people, folks. And they are armed to the teeth. They are armed with swords. And I noticed one of the texts says, cudgels. I said, cudgels? What is that? What's well, a wooden club? I don't know who got stuck with the wooden clubs, the club, but the reality is there's a lot of firepower there. And these guys are headed for what they consider to be a very dangerous revolutionary. Let's call him a bin Laden type for the moment. And you ought, you've got to know they're serious about what's going to happen. They expect violent resistance. So if one guy does something like Peter does, draw that sword and lop off an ear, do you see what could have happened in that? I mean, if there had been guns, my folks, it would have been worse than our first men's retreat. Now, all the men know what that means. But there was guns, and there was a lot of them, and a lot of firing taking place, fortunately, all in the same direction away from anybody else. But there would have been a massive bloodbath here, in my opinion, had something happened outside of our Lord's control. So they're expecting resistance. They are geared up to deal with it. And in all of this, Jesus says to his disciples, here's what's going down. And he then goes out to meet them. Notice that he also deals uh, with Judas in this. There is actually an interesting little textual variation. And so in some text, it may say Jesus is asking Judas, what are you doing here? Or why are you doing this? And uh, another basically says, go ahead with what you're doing. It's almost in my mind like Jesus is saying, Judas, I know what you're after. Get on with it. Giving Judas permission to carry this thing out. Judas has arranged this. He has apparently acquired these, all of this, these armed people and so on to go with him. And uh, I'm sure he doesn't want this to fail because Peter would have probably run this guy down and run him through. And it wouldn't have been an ear that he'd have been dealing with. So uh, Jesus questions Judas, then Judas, and then tells him to go ahead. Judas kisses Jesus, identifying for the mob. I, I pointed this out in a Bible study on Tuesday, and I, I think it's kind of a tee-hee. But when Judas says, the one I kiss is the one, he uses a, a kind of a plain Jane vanilla term. And when he actually does it, Matthew and Mark, it, there's an emphatic expression put ahead of it. And it seems to me that what it's saying is it's an extended kiss. I won't mention who, but somebody in our Bible study said, yuck. <laughs> but think about this. If the kiss is the sign that identifies Jesus to apparently a large group of people, most of whom don't know who Jesus is, then the kiss has to be long enough that everybody can see it. So, I, you know, it's not one of those what I call... Uh, 
the, the Eastern missed me kisses. You know, both sides of your face, they never hit you. They just kind of aim off into the wind and you get those. It's not one of those kind. It's a long, drawn-out one so that everybody gets to see, oh, this is the one that he's kissing and indicating it is the Lord Jesus. That having happened, a sequence of events happens, and, and now I'm putting together, I'm bundling all of the accounts, and we don't know precisely the sequence of each one of these things, we do know that each one of these things happened in some kind of sequence. And this gives you a, a, a feel for the totality of all that happened uh, in those moments that Mark is going to describe for us more briefly in his account. Jesus is seized. Once they see who he is, he is seized and bound to be taken off. We would probably say he's handcuffed to be taken off. Two of the disciples, we assume one of those would be Peter, two of the disciples, especially after Jesus has said, you know, the one who doesn't have a sword, buy one, and they say, here's two. Uh, they say, uh, well, is this the time to pull out those swords? And Peter never waited for much of anything. And before that question is answered, Peter's got the sword out, and off goes the ear of the high priest's servant. Now, think about what that would have meant when you have all of these armed people really on, the, on edge for the violence that might proceed, it's amazing to me, it's miraculous to me that, 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 that the whole situation just doesn't come unraveled and swords are now flying every which way. If that had happened, my friend, Jesus would have died by a Roman sword, not on a Roman cross. Jesus had to die at a certain time and in a certain way, and this was not the time. So Jesus' actions here prevent, in a sense, wrongful death at a wrong time. So Malchus's ear is cut off. We know it's Malchus, thanks to John. Jesus restores the ear. I, that, to me, if I were going to make a lot out of something in this whole account, I, I would have really leaned on the ear thing. And it's only one gospel, Luke, that tells us Jesus put it back. But if you want to make a case for the fact that Jesus is a violent, dangerous criminal, I just take the ear. <laughs> Lend me your ears, <laughs> you know, and, and in you go. The ear is evidence. When Jesus puts it back, I don't know. I'm guessing that there wasn't even any blood left. So what are you going to do? Said, he cut my ear off. Let's see it. Well, it's back. No blood. I mean, what do you say to that? What do you say? It, it, it just leaves you speechless. Anyway, so he restores the ear. He, Jesus then rebukes Peter and the disciples about their use of violence. He doesn't need violence. And Matthew's account does a really great job of that, as you can see in your text. Oh, by the way, about those notes. I'm sorry for the multiple pages. I had an argument with the printer, and it won. And rather than doing double-sided, it did single-sided on some of yours. And so you end up with a ream of paper. I'm sorry about that today, some of you. Okay, so Jesus rebukes Peter and the disciples. Then, you'll notice, he rebukes the religious leaders. That's what he does in our text, in Mark. Rebukes the religious leaders because the procedure is, is unlawful. Now, there's a lot to be said about that. You know, I'll say a little bit more about that when we get to the trial uh, element itself. He rebukes them, and then I think the most powerful one of all is the John account. 
I mean, can you imagine what's taking place when Jesus marches out, faces people? They expect Jesus to either come out with guns drawn or for him to flee into the, into the darkness to escape. And here comes Jesus walking out, leading his disciples, and in a sense, at the same time, saying to the guys, put those swords away. He comes out to face them, and then he says, uh, who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. And they go, man, here's another backside story, isn't it? They go on their, on their back ends, and, and, and here they are. I think that's probably the time delay. You know, when you talk about what could have exploded, I think that's when Peter gets out the sword. Jesus has the ear back on and the violence is stopped before these guys are back on their feet. So they can't react in the way they do. And it's at that point Jesus asks the second time and he says to the, this whole arresting group, well, if you're after me, let these go. Now, do you really think they planned to only capture Jesus? And that's where our little friend who loses his, uh, his, his, his robe in the middle of the night is going to help us out. These guys plan to arrest Jesus and to arrest his leaders, his disciples, so that they could put an end to this. Jesus has so disarmed them by what he says and does that they, they let the disciples walk off or run off into the darkness and they don't do anything about it. That, to me, is, is an amazing thing. The disciples flee, uh, they escape, and as we will see in our text, so will the streaker in a little bit. Now, let's talk about some of the implications about all of this put together. I, I, I find it very interesting that the composite account gives us all of the factors that are involved in, in Jesus' Uh, delivering his disciples and even this young man delivering the disciples and yet delivering himself up for crucifixion at the same time in the midst of a situation that would not appear to have been favorable to any of this happening and, and the reason I say this is if I stay just with Matthew, or Mark's account we would miss the load of evidence look at all the factors that come to play in terms of the release of the disciples as well as the arrest of our Lord Jesus number one this is a last minute operation they are the, the Jewish religious leaders have said not during the feast but when Jesus reveals one of the twelve is going to betray him and says to Judas yes it's you Judas has to act then so while Jesus is given the upper room discourse and they're having that meal Judas is out putting this together but my point is it is done hastily these guys are not sitting and waiting they, they, this thing is all put together and so you have this a little bit of a hodgepodge we're going to see that at the trial as well this is a hastily put together thing, and so this catches them a bit off guard. That doesn't help their cause at all. Secondly, instead of fighting or running, Jesus comes forth and deals face to face with them with authority. My friends, notice this. When Jesus speaks to the religious leaders, he rebukes them as one above them. When he speaks to the soldiers, he speaks to the one who is in charge of them. 
Now, this is the one who has said, I could call 12 legions of angels. You think this is big? Listen, I got lots of horsepower waiting in heaven. And they only need one word from me. So, Jesus uh, comes forth with boldness and he responds in a way that catches them off guard. This was not in their plan. What do we do if Jesus just comes out and, and peacefully confronts us? They don't know. So he catches them by surprise. The I am statement uh, with them falling backwards was definitely a uh, chink in the armor. He rebukes his disciples. He rebukes the religious leaders. And I want to say more about that a little bit later. Uh, he heals the ear and he says, then let these men go. What's interesting to me is that the gospel writers do not find it necessary to list all of those as reasons. Oftentimes, they'll only list one of them or two of them as a reason. And the point being, it didn't take all of these things to accomplish what it did, okay, I'm going to tell you right now. I was going to wait, but i got to tell you now. When you see Jesus feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000, and we talked about connecting the dots, and Jesus says, how many baskets of leftovers were there? The point of what Jesus is saying is, when he acts, he acts in abundance. When he provides, he provides in abundance. When he delivers, he delivers in abundance. He could have delivered through one thing. That's all that Mark gives us. A rebuke, not to Peter, but to the, the, the religious leaders. He could have delivered through one thing, but he's got a handful of things that come together. And what we see is Jesus is really in charge. And all of the Gospels put together emphasize, I think, that point. Jesus is in charge. He is the victor. He is not the victim. Jesus has the means not only to orchestrate the deliverance of his disciples. He has the means to orchestrate the deliverance of himself. So that here you have this very interesting thing happening. Disciples delivered, plus the guy on the sheet... Jesus delivered over by his own volition so that he gives himself up for what he delivers them from. Very interesting to me. He's in control not only of the outcome, but of the timing. Every one of these texts, if you look in your, in your scripture, now John's account when he says, and Jesus had finished speaking these things, John's account in 18.1 is beginning and referring back to what Jesus said in the upper room. Every other account, the, the other three synoptic accounts are saying, Jesus is just finishing what he says to his disciples as the, as the throng comes out and he goes out to face them. What I see in that is, you know, Jesus doesn't say, well, I suppose they'll show up here in 15, 20 minutes. Let's wait around, you know, guys. I don't know exactly what time it'll be. Jesus has just the right amount of time to do everything he does before they head out for Gethsemane. He has just enough time for the Lord's Supper, just enough time for the upper room discourse, just enough time for his high priestly prayer. And the minute that's done, 
the next sequence of events happens. And what you see is Jesus has precisely orchestrated not only the outcome, but the timing of the events. That says to me, he's in charge. I don't do as well on my timing. He does perfectly on his timing throughout all of this in which some would see him as the victim rather than as the victor. The emphasis in my reading of this is not on Jesus' works, but on his words. Now that's kind of interesting when you go back to the creation account and everything else, but it's Jesus' spoken words that are powerful. Even the words, I suppose, that he spoke when he healed Malchus's ear. He rebukes the leaders, he rebukes the disciples, and he says, let these go. And it's as though Jesus spoke, and it was so. Everything that happens is the fulfillment of God's word. Notice that in these accounts. In order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And here's the interesting one. One of the things that is fulfilled is Jesus' words in John 17 that says, I will lose not one of these. So that when the 11 escape, actually 12, you notice maybe that's the substitute, <laughs> make 12. When they escape, not one of his followers is captured. Just like Jesus said. So you've got Jesus' words of prophecy, Old Testament words of prophecy. They converge and they're all fulfilled in this passage. And of course, elsewhere as well. To me, it's very clear. Jesus is in charge. And I have to say, Mel Gibson got it wrong. I went back and I looked at that first part. And, you know, there's a lot of horsey stuff. One, the, the Satan, kind of weird-looking Satan that, that's here and there looking on. And then the snake that, that's there in the, in the garden of the temptation or whatever. And you say, get over that. It's not there in the text. But even so, there's this excessive emphasis upon Jesus' suffering. And as I said with the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the physical suffering of Jesus is not the great suffering. It's the, it's the suffering of the separation from the Father. Not, not whether you get a crown of thorns smushed on your head or whatever. That's the great agony. And here it seems to me that when, when he portrays the, the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest, he does not touch the fact that Jesus is absolutely in control in every gospel. Every gospel. Jesus is running that scene. That says to me that when I, when I connect the Garden of Gethsemane to Jesus on the cross, this is not the helpless Jesus who somehow is being carried along by the moment. It is Jesus who has orchestrated that moment to die in the right way and at the right time. Okay, talk about a couple of unique contributions. Look at Matthew. He says to Judas, do what you're here to do. Jesus gives Judas permission to betray him. What if Jesus had said no? Then it wouldn't have happened, in my opinion. When he rebukes uh, Peter for the use of force and the disciples. Look at this. All who live by the sword die by the sword. 
John has added, uh, how then would the Father's will be uh, followed through? And that's sort of what he says in that, how will the Scriptures be fulfilled? But Matthew adds, I can summon 12 legions of angels. Do you understand what Jesus has at his fingertips? One call to heaven, and this thing is finished. Jesus is in control, certainly not the religious leaders, certainly not the soldiers. And notice the twofold cause and effect. One of the things I'd like you to do when you take those notes and look at those texts, look at the effect, and the effect is all the disciples fled. Now, fled's not a glorious word, so in your minds put escape. They did flee, but the reality is they escaped, just like Jesus said they would. So when you notice that, there's a twofold effect. One is Jesus' rebuke of the disciples in Matthew. Secondly, his rebuke of the religious leaders. Okay, Luke. In Luke, we see the healing of Malchus's ear. We know it's Malchus thanks to John, but we know he was healed thanks to Luke. He includes that which none of the other Gospels include. He also notes the presence of the chief priests and the elders. Now, other texts indicated Jesus sent these armed people. This text, Jesus speaks to them. So they must be there to see to it that things are done right. Jesus rebukes the religious leaders. And notice this statement that he added. This is your hour and that of the power of darkness. Do you, do you see the force of what Jesus is saying? You have now joined forces with hell. We read with Judas that he took that and Satan entered into him. Jesus is saying, you guys are not on God's side. You are on hell's side. That's pretty strong words to be speaking to those who are seeking your arrest and death. John. He names Simon Peter. As the guy who draws the sword. That's really not a surprise, is it? Not a surprise, but none of the other guys choose to name him. John does. He also tells us that Malchus is the guy's name who was the high priest's servant. He says then, am I not to drink the cup which the Father has given me? Is that not taking us right back to the Garden of Gethsemane and the commitment our Lord has made? And then he says, of course, who do you seek? I am. That's the whole sequence of events that puts those guys totally uh, at a disadvantage. And, uh, and then he says, this letting go of the disciples was the fulfillment of his own prophetic words that were spoken in John 17. He would not lose one of those who was his follower. Okay, let's look at Mark. Mark, when you read, when you start reading this and, and you look at, at, at the account, it, it really is sort of Judas-centered. When you look at verses 43 to 46, uh, Judas had a plan. You know, Judas had orchestrated this. He brings the, the soldiers and whatever together, and he says to them, now here's the sign. I'm going to kiss this one. So when you read those first verses, you sort of see it from Judas's point of view, and Judas is saying, wow, this is going just like clockwork, Right? He goes, he greets Jesus, kisses him. They come, they put the, the, the uh, handcuffs on Jesus, and, and they're about to lead him off. And you think, oh, man, well, looks like it's going according to plan. <laughs> well, one of the things that wasn't in 
Judas's contingency was uh, Peter and the old sword wielding, uh, yielding, wielding. I said yielding by in your notes. By the way, I, I probably couldn't remember how to spell wielding. So there it is. He grabs that sword and that changes the whole dimension, as I understand it, of this event. When that sword comes out, folks, notice what Jesus says in Mark. This is fascinating to me. Verse 47, one of the bystanders drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. And Judas said to them, the, 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 the arresting people, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? How could Jesus say that at the time when Peter still got his bloody sword out? The only way it can happen, folks, is the ear had to go back on, the guys had to go on their backsides, and Jesus had to rebuke the disciples and get the guns put away. It's amazing to me what Mark tells us and, and what he does not. John is, Judas has orchestrated it. Jesus is arrested. Everything goes fine until Peter. Then Peter is rebuked, and so is the crowd. And the statement is made, all this happened to fulfill the scriptures. Every single particular detail, even to the second in time, is a part of a predetermined plan on the part of our Lord. And it all goes down just as the plan would say. Nobody else's plan was working except Jesus. Jesus rebukes the crowd, the cause. The disciples flee the effect. He doesn't mention the ear. He doesn't mention all of the other things he could have mentioned. It was enough, my friend, that Jesus rebuked them. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop back on you and uh, go to Mark chapter 4. Remember that? Tail end of Mark chapter 4. Jesus is out in the boat with the disciples. Storm comes up. Disciples are saying, man, Jesus, we're all dying around here. Who's going to deliver us? What did Jesus do? He rebuked the wind and the waves. And it's over. It's over. This text doesn't give us all of the other things. All it says is, Jesus rebuked those who came to arrest Him. And it's over. The disciples are gone. Just like Scripture said. It only takes a word from Jesus. And I tell you, when He gives a rebuke, folks, you ought to listen. So here's the, uh, here comes this, this unique event of the streaker, the young man. Oh, there's a lot of speculation. This was really Mark. Maybe it was. <laughs> Mark doesn't really care to identify himself. Probably was. It doesn't matter who it is. It seems to me it's clear. It's not one of the 11. It's somebody who is tagged along. Maybe they got up. Maybe they were aroused somehow in the middle of the night and they grabbed the sheet and wrapped it around themselves. I don't know what happened, folks. But all I know is the guy and his sheet got separated. But here's the point. They wanted to arrest him. They tried to arrest him. Did they not? Isn't that what's going on? It, it, it looks to me, and I'm going to kind of skip over some of the stuff on the screen, but it looks to me like you've got this plan set up. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to make sure that Jesus and his disciples don't escape, not one of them. And uh, Jesus has his plan. His disciples head off. And these guys are saying to themselves, Oh, good grief, if we only go in with Jesus, we're in trouble. Hey, there's one straggler. Grab him! 
Right? They can't even hold him. Reason? Because Jesus said, not one of my followers will be taken. Not one. Not even this one. Whatever his name is. Whatever got him out of bed in a sheet. Not him either. This, this account is telling us how badly these arresting people wanted Jesus' followers. Oh, I forgot to tell you. In John chapter 18, when Jesus comes before the high priest, the first question the high priest raises is about Jesus' disciples. Second one's about his teaching. He wanted to know who they were, and he wanted them under arrest. So this incident with this young man is saying, they were really serious. In a sense, when the disciples got, uh, got uh, fled, it was the army that got caught with their pants down. Now here's this guy, one straggler left. we got to get him. Off he goes, streaking into the night. It's another testimony to the fulfillment of Jesus' words. Not one will be taken. All will escape. Okay. So, here you have this, uh, this whole incident which serves, in my opinion, to demonstrate the absolute power and control of our Lord Jesus Christ over His circumstances. The amazing thing is, the same power that He employed to release His disciples, all 12 of them, the same power that He used to release them is the power He could have employed to release Himself and chose not to. Jesus orchestrated His death and their deliverance. And in fact, when you stop and think about it, isn't that just the way it worked? Isn't that what we celebrate every Sunday at communion? His death is our deliverance. And everyone for whom he has died, every one of those is certain of deliverance. I, uh, I was reminded this morning of a text in Psalm chapter 2, which sort of could be a header, could it not, for this whole event? Verse 1, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I think there's a sense in which we need to laugh with him. As we read this text, it's not that it's a belly, you know, laugh kind of thing. It's us saying, how foolish to think you can control the living God. It is He who is in charge. And that sets the tone for all of the other events. Even, well, I don't want to tell you that because that's next week's sermon. Let's just say, every event that takes place from this point on, is something that evidences His power and authority, His Word. He has promised to be our 
deliverer. And not one of those that he has delivered will ever be taken victim by those who oppose him. One last thing. God is going to deliver us just as he promised. It may not be flattering the way he does. (laughs) I'm thinking of the man on the sheet now, folks. But the reality is, when you look at our Lord's deliverance, even of the eleven... You, you know, nobody amongst those disciples is going to say, man, I, I, could I have a video of that? I want to hang that on YouTube. It's not flattering to them. It is glorifying to God. And that's the point. His job is not to make us look spectacular and to, to underscore our successes. His job is to bring glory to himself. And he has done it here. So that changes the way in which we approach the trial of our Lord Jesus, the execution of our Lord Jesus. Jesus could have ended it here. But by his will, he went to the cross. Not because he was a victim, but because he was the victor. Father, we thank you for this text. What an amazing thing it is to read of our Lord Jesus, the power of his rebuke. The fact that he could have called all of those angels to his rescue. How amazing that he delivered his disciples, but he delivered himself up to save them and us. I pray if anyone's here, apart from faith in the Lord Jesus, they would trust in him, the great and the only deliverer. In Jesus' name, amen.